Tom, hi, how are you doing? I'm all right. Thanks, Richmond. Not too bad. I've got a, a tickle in my throat. Oh. Which I'm a bit worried about. <laughs> really? Yeah, I got a tickle in my throat about two days ago. And um, I'm trying not to think about it. I'm sure it'll be fine. Yeah, I mean, if you don't think about it, it's, it's sort of it's like a tree falling in the forest. Is it? Is it making yeah. sound or not? Yeah, yeah. I'm sure, it, yeah. I'm sure it'll be fine. Um, and this will help me to take my mind off the tickle in my throat. It will. So whatever we do, we won't talk about the tickle in your throat. No, no. Or coronavirus at all, hopefully. Or maybe we won't talk about radicular pain. That would be amazing. Well, we could try and avoid that. <laughs> um, but but maybe we shouldn't avoid coronavirus because I think that um, everyone's talking about it. So I think it would be great to add something else. Um, okay. How how have you been dealing with it? Um, all right, I've been. Uh, I, it's funny talking about these things because you you don't want to ever really complain because you know everyone. There's always many people who have it much worse than you, isn't there? Um, and in many ways, I've been quite sheltered. So I was in the states when it all kicked off. Um, and I remember, it's terrible to admit, but being a little bit grateful I wasn't in practice because I didn't want to get redeployed and all that stuff, which is a terrible thing to admit. But I remember thinking, well, thank goodness I can at least sort of stay at home and not worry about it um, when that was kind of... Because you remember back then, we didn't really have any sort of handle on what sort of thing it was. Um, so I think that people were extremely concerned at that time. And I, I remember being a bit relieved that I could at least shelter myself, which is a, not a thing you want to admit, but I think this is the, the space to do it, isn't it? Like in a proper conversation like this. But in, in other respects, it's been reasonably bad for me. It's made, it, like immigration has frozen. So I'm, wait, I'm waiting for my green card, which is supposed to be, it's supposed to be three months, which in American bureaucratic terms means like six or seven months but COVID's just put everything on hold. So I'm kind of in the country now still as an alien, which is quite strange. Mm. Um, so that's not been ideal. My wife had COVID. Oh, really? She had, she, yeah, she works in a hospital. So we assume, well, I'm not sure if that's where she got it. Cause I feel like they would have traced it if, if it had been her, but, but it was only her out of her colleagues, but she got it somehow. Uh, we live in a one bedroom apartment. Uh, and as soon as she got it, I, I kind of realized it was completely impractical for us to, for me to isolate from her. I couldn't put her in the bedroom and like shove Snickers bars under the door or something. Like, I was like, you know what, I'll, I'll just get it too. Um, so we just did everything as normal and I didn't get coronavirus, which is bizarre. Wow. It's, it's bizarre, isn't it? Romantic and it, robust. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think, I guess in the same way that there's super spreaders, maybe there's like hypo spreaders or something and she just didn't, she just doesn't give it to people, I don't know. Yeah. But it would have been, uh, anyway, so that's kind of my, the potted history of my, my coronavirus experience so far. Wait, when did you move to America? Uh, in September, what year are we now? 2021, so September 2019. Right, yeah, so a few months before, well, what's that, sort of five months or so before everything kicked off. Yeah, yeah. Um, I moved to Michigan. So I'm, my wife's American, and we've um, 
we've been um, together for 10 years, but um, this is actually the first time we've ever lived together, believe it or not. Um, I don't know how much you, you want to talk about all that, but so we met in South Korea um, 10 years ago. We were both working there um, and we've been together ever since, but I've been in England. She's been in America and we were both students for a lot of that time. So we could sort of spend time together because our time was a bit more flexible. Yeah. Um, and then finally in, yeah, as I say, 2019, after all the kind of paperwork and all the, all the waiting, I kind of came over and we got married in October, November of that year. Yeah. So just after you moved. So you've been just after I moved. A year and a bit. Marital bliss. Mm. It's pretty good. I like it. it. Yeah, it is good. Yeah. It's, it's an institution. It's a, it's a good yeah. one. Yeah. What, yeah. what were you doing in South Korea? Teaching English. So there's a, a classic. Uh, so I, I'm 32 now. Uh, I went to uni, the first time I went to uni, I studied history because it was what I was good at at school. And it's that classic thing of, I, I, I was not, I, I don't think many 17, 18 year olds are mature enough to choose what they're going to do. And I certainly wasn't like, I was just not even, my head wasn't in that space at all. So just naturally like, well, I guess I'll go to uni, I guess I'll do history. Uh, and I graduated with a history degree and a lot of my friends became lawyers, <laughs> which I knew I didn't want to do that. And I probably couldn't have done it either. Like, certainly at that age, that was a common. And then, of course, there's like a lot of them became like money people. I don't really understand what money people do, but they were they became like whatever those people are that move money around. And I knew that I was nowhere near that sort of. So I just ended up going to South Korea to teach English because it's... um. I don't know how it is back then, but I don't know how it is now, but back then um, it, it was kind of, they give you like good, decent training, not, not great training. It's still, it's still teaching English as a foreign language is a bit of a wild west industry, but it's pretty good TEFL. training. TEFL. Yeah. Pretty good training, like, um, and pretty good support. And it's close to a real job, whereas a lot of TEFL isn't. So I chose South Korea for just that reason really because there was sort of a bit more of a professional status to it yeah i think um there's like you can go to south america which is obviously incredible but people tend to, again i don't know how it is now but back then it was like you end up patching gigs together so you have like two or three gigs and then you get sacked for no particular reason you have to find another one and like that's never um I just kind of wanted stability, which may be like a weird thing for a 20 or 21 year old to want. Um, but South Korea gives you like a year long contract with a salary in a public school. And um, that's kind of, that was it for me. Yeah. I didn't really have any idea what South Korea would be like. I've, not, I've never really been that. Before I went, I hadn't really ever, like Korean movies are obviously pretty big now, but back then they weren't. So I didn't really have any idea what it would be like. So the choice of South Korea was was largely on on that and the security, but yet you wanted some kind of adventure as well. Yeah, I think so. I don't think um, that's a good question. I don't. I don't think back then I wasn't very good at introspecting. I don't, or or maybe at least in my memory, I don't have very good memories of what my motivations were, um, which it might be a strange thing to say, 
but I think um, I have got better at that now or maybe worse maybe I'm too introspective but back then I, I genuinely just used to wake up in the morning and if I had to do something I would do it but if not I would just kind of float it was quite feckless basically so I don't remember particularly having like a grand narrative in my head of I want adventure or I want to see the world it just seemed like a reasonably interesting thing to do and I thought I wouldn't be bad at the, the job and I wasn't that bad I was okay um so I ended up doing it uh, so you did, that for, <laughs> you did that for a year did you, you completed the job two, uh two years yeah two years two. I was there. Mm. so so you extended yeah yeah I, the first year was in a public school um like employed by the uh, metropolitan government of Seoul and the second year I went to a private language school because I wanted to see what it was like to teach adults um and it was okay I probably shouldn't have done it like it was um they have a it's still South Korea so that it's not terrible um there's still a pretty um good culture to work in um but it was yeah I mean they're private companies who want to make a profit mm -hmm. which is not not a bad thing um but if you're an employee it's not the most it's not the best place to work so I was quite overworked and under supported um the second year yeah but that's not a complaint. I mean, it's still a great life if you're out there. <clears throat> the money's pretty good and you get to see some of the world and meet new people. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, you, you were faced with challenges in, on the other side of the world. And that requires you to, to dig in a little bit and find ways of dealing with those. Mm. Yeah, I think um, I, I have a hard time like drawing a straight line from like particular skills that I learned then that are good for me now. But I think one of them is probably um, maybe two things. One is that as like a quite um, self-absorbed and feckless young man, being thrown into a culture where you're always under scrutiny because you're, you're the only foreigner in the workplace and um, again this is 10 years ago so you were the only foreigner many people have met uh, and it's quite a um, scrutinous culture anyway like they're, they're always kind of looking at each other to see um, you know if, if you um, have a bad night's sleep people will notice in South Korea oh, right. say, you look tired today or something like that mm. so this is a good thing in many ways of course um, but I think that was good for me because it made it made me um, kind of uh, pay more attention to how I fitted in with other people around me, which up till then I'd probably managed to just um, ignore that quite, quite, quite well. Uh, and the other thing that you have to do, obviously, as an English teacher, is people ask you questions about stuff that you kind of know, but you've never really thought about, and you have to translate it into terms that are understandable to them. Um, so, you know, why does, why do we use this phrase, this idiom, it doesn't make any, any sense. Um, and why can you use it in this context, but not that other context. And when you're first starting, you don't have any stock answers. So you have to think it through and everything. And I think that's a good sort of practice for um, talking to patients. Um, I found it relatively, I've always found it relatively easy maybe that's a bit overconfident, but relatively easy to talk to patients and help explain things to them in terms that they understand. 
and now hopefully doing a pretty good job of doing that for clinicians too. And I think maybe I trained that when I was in Korea, sort of answering questions for eight hours a day about stuff that, you know, trying to formulate it into terms people understand. So you, you were having to think on your feet whilst in, in front mm -hmm. of the group. Were you, were you comfortable at that point to say to them, hey, uh, actually, I don't really know the answer to that, but I'll go away and check it out and come back to you? Good question. Um, uh, I don't remember. Uh, I don't think so, to be honest. I think people are pretty nice out there. Uh, like, there's, you don't feel under a huge amount of pressure to be uh, an all-knowing sort of expert. Um, so that you, but at the same time, uh, no, I don't recall having those thoughts back then around things like uncertainty and admitting admitting that you don't know. Uh, so I'm probably probably not that willing to do that. No. Hmm. Good. Good stuff. And so after so after being in in Seoul, which I like the I like that sound Seoul. Yeah. Being yeah. in Seoul, your own Seoul. <laughs> um, you spent two years there. And then mm -hmm. where did you go after that? Um, so I was, as I say, with met my wife there. She's from California originally. So we were together in Korea. And then we um, went our separate, well, we stayed together as a couple, but we went our separate ways. She always knew she wanted to become, she had a very specific goal which she's now achieved, which is to become a clinical neuropsychologist. Uh, so the, right now she's working with people who've had strokes and head trauma and things like that. Um, and she knew exactly what she wanted to do. And to do that, you've got to get a doctorate. And so she went to do that in America. I didn't. And there was the option to kind of go like tag along and go to America. But I think we, we both kind of knew that I might just end up taking the only job I could do back then with a history degree, which is maybe, I don't, well, I don't know, something I wouldn't want to do for the rest of my life anyway. Um, so I went back to England and kind of put my thinking cap on and thought, well, I need a, a trade or a career or some sort of profession um, before I go and, you know, see, go and try and survive in America um, and ended up with physiotherapy um partly by process of elimination i think uh, i knew again i knew like i didn't like by this time some of my friends from uni were like miserable as lawyers mm. um and i know now that um most people in most jobs just complain about everything anyway <laughs> and and so there's plenty of perks to being a lawyer and all that but they were complaining that they were working for cigarette companies and they were working till 10 p.m at night and so that was my picture of law um and, and just other, lots of careers I just didn't want to do at all uh and I had a vague idea that um I wanted to be like help some help people so healthcare seemed like an obvious route um and sort of again physiotherapy is like the, the kind of crappy reasoning that I like exercise <laughs> I like exercise and I want to help people so I'll be a physiotherapist so that's that's why well, what else was in the mix um things that seem absurd now um architects yeah uh and i think that was that was off because their training is so long um i can't remember how long but it, 
that's years and years they trained for. Um, that was one. I can't remember what else. My 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 dad was trying to push me towards like industry, so he he was suggesting like um, management, like supply chain management and things like that, which now I know would be a really bloody interesting job, um, and I think that would be really interesting. But at the time, I couldn't think of anything more boring. <laughs> so yeah, I was saying that great foresight there. Yeah, <laughs> but um, yeah, uh, stuff like that. Yeah. Did, did you have anyone in particular at that time who who encouraged you? Who saw something in you? Um, good question. The fact that I'm having to think about it suggests not. I'm trying to think of like an external sort of mentor. My parents have always been quietly supportive. So they never really pushed me to do anything. Um, and they, but they obviously kind of, but, and they don't like boost me and like tell me, oh, you, you can do anything you want, son. But they obviously kind of um, have this background sort of um, messaging that they feel like I'm a capable person, which is not something to be sniffed at because I know a lot of people don't get that from their parents. Yeah. My wife has always had like an order of magnitude more belief in me than I have in myself. So she, um, uh, she, I think um, I'm sort of naturally um, quite self-critical person. Um, I don't tear myself down or make myself miserable with it or anything, but I definitely know or have a keen sense of my own limitations. Um, and she often is quite good at helping me believe in myself a bit more, I suppose. Um, uh, so I think probably that's that's something. She as as I said, she's always had um, a a very um, long uh, time horizon. So she knows what she wants to be doing in five, ten, fifteen years. When I didn't, she knows a bit more about, or she knew when I was that age a bit more about how the world works and stuff like that. And um, so she probably, I've never ever felt that she would push or prod me in any direction. But she's always had this kind of belief in me which probably helps a lot um i got quite emotional when i was writing the acknowledgement section to the book that i just finished because i was like oh I'm, I'm i'm too english for this i don't want to write have to write about all this but it's kind of unavoidable like she yeah she is pretty it's pretty incredible having someone who you see every day who um I keep, keep hesitating for when she's using this phrase, believe in me, because like she's not like cheering me on from the sidelines. She's not like a cheerleader, but she just obviously has this faith that I'm pretty capable of doing stuff, which is a really, really valuable thing to have. Yeah. Well, no, absolutely. I mean, having someone that you're deeply connected with in, in that way um, is huge fuel. Yeah. And I'm, I'm sure you repay in in your own way <laughs> uh yeah i hope so i like i like being a husband it's great it's really good um so people it's not very cool to talk about anymore but or maybe i don't know maybe it is um but i like um the sense of uh duty uh and the sense of being part of something like a, a marriage which is a bit bigger than myself um and she's pregnant now, so I'm looking forward to being a dad too. Congratulations. 
Thanks, Richmond. Exciting times. Yeah, yeah, it's all good. So what, what comes through from, from a lot of what you've said is, is this sort of giving and caring and, and sharing. And, and recently you've, you've done that in a, in a very practical way with, with the book. And you've also been sharing in a practical way with your um, newsletter, which has been gathering um, momentum. Yeah. Which is, which is fantastic. And, and you've particularly focused on, um, on a particular area. I wanted to use the word particular twice there, <laughs> just to really narrow it down. Um, and I'm trying to avoid the use of the term that we started at the at the beginning, but um, but no. What the point I wanted to make there was that there's there's a theme here. There's a theme here of caring and sharing. Where where do you think that comes from? Um, I should. Hmm. I think um, I don't. Hmm, where do we go with that? I've not thought about it too much, which I should have done before I came on a podcast called um, blank, blanking um, Positive Encouragers. I should have thought about this more, but I think this is not sort of any false modesty or pushing back on, on what you said, but I think a lot of it is, um, is selfless in a sense. So, I remember um, when I was at uni, I was a bit older than most. This, I'd say half half the students were mature students like me and half of them were just out of school. And I really liked helping the ones who were just out of school. Um, and I, I liked doing that and it came very naturally to me. Um, but beyond that, I don't, I've never really thought of myself as a selfless or a giving person. And the people who uh, are close to me in close to me in my life often have to remind me of what a selfish person I am uh, and how self-absorbed I can be so like I, I really can be in in my own head and up my own ass like quite a lot of time and people need to remind me of that maybe like lots of young men but um so I, th I think I'm sort of conflicted about because there's definitely two sides to it like like a lot of people I suppose it's never simple with with this um with the for want of a better term, like ed educating people about sciatica. Um, it started before sciatica because I wrote like three or four reasonably popular articles, which I just felt I had to write. Um, there was one called like myths and misconceptions in physio, which is a little bit, a little bit, it's a phrase like green behind the ears now. It's not, it's, it's a little bit naive in places. There was a history of posture, which is also sort of equally quite a naive narrative in some ways, and the history of pain. So I was writing this stuff for no particular reason. And that was not a selfless task. I just felt like I had to and wanted to spend my time doing that. And it's similar with the ridiculous pain thing. Like I would probably be doing this anyway. It's just an itch that I have to scratch. And what I've, but I also know that, um, you can't do this stuff alone. Um, you know, you, you need the momentum of people reading stuff that you've written. You need the feedback, whether it's good or bad, to keep you going or uh, correct your course. Um, so I probably, I think I've quite consciously tried to align my own, the, the things that I want to do, which is read 
and write about ridiculous pain with things that I will know I know will be good for other people, um, if that makes sense. Uh, I don't think I'm explaining that very well, but the, one thing I do often think about is not only with things I want to do, but how to make money as well, which is like something that people don't often talk about, but it's obviously desperately important. Mm -hmm. How to make money is to try to align things I want to do and how I can make money with things that are also useful and good in the world. So that's tr a tricky thing to do, but that's what I'm trying to do. I don't feel like it comes from like a wellspring of generosity or giving nature. I just, it seems almost like a more practical thing to me is like, well, I don't want to be a dick and, you know, I didn't want to become a lawyer and work for cigarette companies. Um, so there is definitely that desire not to do bad things and to try and do good things. But um, at the same time, I don't think of myself as I'm rambling a bit now, but I certainly don't think of myself as particularly charitable or generous as my nature, if that makes sense. Yeah, that, that's what it feels like to you. Yeah, <laughs> that's how it feels inside. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's an element of sort of, it's not quite self-criticism, is there? But, um, <laughs> but, but you, you know, the, the practical side of, right, is there something I have a passion for, a subject? Mm -hmm. Interesting you, that you mentioned within that list of your initial articles, that it was the history of most of those things. So history's mm -hmm. still in there, mm -hmm. isn't it? Um, yeah, yeah. But, you know, if you can align something that's important to you and is also important to a lot of people, clinicians, and all the poor sufferers of, of such pain. Um, and you can make a living from that. Great. Yeah. Because you've got to make a living. Of course you have. Uh, yeah. I think in the healthcare professions, there's, I think there's, there's often a, and I've been guilty of this as well, you know, a, a concern about talking about money and, and making money and, and things like that but we we've all got to make a living and there's a value and we don't have to get into you know a debate about value and things like that but, mm -hmm. but you in a sense you you create your own by by what you do and what you bring to the party and then if people are prepared to 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 pay for that level of service and expertise and, and knowledge then then that's you know a specialism I, i'm a fan of I think I think that's yeah. that's the way. Yeah. Um, and you you know you're carving out um, a really valuable niche, or you've carved a valuable niche. Yeah. Thanks, mate. Appreciate that. And yeah, I think you, you stated it maybe a bit better than me. And I think the reason it is it's difficult to explain is because in in healthcare, um, what you just said and what I said is completely sensible. Um, to anyone which is you need to make money and you want to try and do something reasonably good for the, your small corner of the world and if you can do those things at once that's great but I think in, in healthcare there, there, there are other kind of things that you worry about and sort of um, things that you don't want to step on when you talk about that and um, certainly the, the the money part is is an awkward awkward one um, yeah but thankfully the the book has done um re pretty reasonably well so one, one thing i was i say this and people don't believe believe me but i genuinely was worried it would just bomb and no one would buy it not because i had no faith in it but because i didn't know i'd not not seen really anyone sell an ebook before 
um, in our circles. And I didn't know if people just had that kind of in instinct to get their wallet out and put their credit card information into the internet to buy an ebook. People buy courses all the time, but maybe they don't buy ebooks. I don't know. It turns out enough people do. So I've sold 600 copies now. Um, and a, a few people have chipped in a bit more than the $20 asking price. So it's if I was to average that by like the hours that I've spent on the book, it's nothing. Like it's far less than minimum wage. Yeah. But I'm very pleased with it because I take it as a signal that um, people trust me that I'm going to give add value to their lives if I'm with my writing and stuff like that. So I think it's a good signal for the future that I can continue doing this and, and keep trying to develop and do more stuff in this space. Uh, so I'm, I'm very happy with that. So you, you see this as a, as a pretty hefty step forward as opposed yeah. to the final product as such. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I th so it's taken me a long time to, um, I've never earned money outside of a salary in my life or a hourly wage when I was working in restaurants and things. Um, and so this is the first time I've ever done that. And the mindset shift has taken probably a year. And I, I can't remember what it was like, but I know it, it like a year ago, it was so hard for me to imagine that I might be able to earn money doing my own thing. Um, and now it feels very easy. Like my, the thing in my head is that if I do stuff that's valuable to people and makes their life better and makes their patients' lives better, people will give me money for that. And it's quite simple, but it was hard for me to make that mindset shift. Um, but I think now I have. And then again, the, the small amount of money, relatively small amount of money I made from the book to me is a good signal that um, A, the second one will be worth writing <laughs> financially and B, that I can do other things. So I'd love to, I don't want to become the sciatica guy at all. Um, and maybe this fits with the, the encourages aspect of the podcast theme. I'd, I'd like to be someone who helps other people one of the things that, that in, in our physio space, I think has been, courses are a funny thing. It takes such an, a huge amount of time, I think, to get a course up and running. And then once you're running it, the admin and the management side of it is huge. Um, and yet a good course is incredibly valuable. And I know so many people who have so much to say and teach that they don't, but they can't because they'd need to take a, they need to go part-time in their job to get a course up and running and something, you know. Um, and what happens is that only the most, uh, there are of course some incredible courses out there, but we know there's some pretty bad ones as well doing the rounds and maybe only the most ruthless entrepreneurs <laughs> kind of really are, are out there doing it every month and, and stuff. Um, with some important exceptions. Um, but I'd really like to help some people who I know have a lot to teach. And I'm not naming any names because I don't want to, I've been talking to them, but I don't want to pre-commit them to anything. I'd like to help them to teach courses or write books, like whichever is best. Because I feel like I'm kind of getting the hang of this um, communication online thing. I'm kind of getting better at that. So... That's what I'd love to do in the long run. And if I can make that sort of financially viable, I'd be very happy. Yeah. 
So you've started those those conversations. So in in effect, then you'd be working as a as a coach, as a mentor. Um, yeah, I don't know, or maybe more hands on, maybe more like a manager. So there's, uh, if I know, let's say I, I know someone who knows a huge amount about uh, elbows. I don't. I've just made that one up. But if it was elbows, and I was like, people need to hear your knowledge about elbows. Um, uh, you know, I can help you to, I can help draw that out of you. You know, we can, you know, build that knowledge that you have in your head and put it on paper or onto videos. You know, I can help you build an audience because that's so important. So people who actually, actually know where to find you and help you build, show the audience that you know what you're doing and, you know, maybe we can write a book together and stuff like that. That's a pipe dream at the moment. I don't think I've really mentioned to anyone except in this podcast. And it needs all sorts of planning to make sure it's it's worth doing. Um, but I'd I'd love to be able to do that because I think it, my perfect sort of day where I'm using my skills is I'm reading papers and I'm I'm talking to people who know more than me and I'm commu- like translating that for other people. Uh, I just really like doing that, and I think I'm probably better at that clinical practice, to be honest. So I'd love to be able to do that in the long run. So and also, sorry, I'm, I'm rambling now, but I said elbows, which is a terrible example because I almost would want to not it to not be like that. Body. So I'd love to, yeah. So I'd, one of my, and again, we're getting in the, into the pipe dream of a pipe dream now, but I'd love to have a course on communication, which is something people talk about all the time. But at the moment, we're, we don't really have great resources to go to. And if we do, they're very modality specific. So you're learning about one thing. Mm. um i'd love to have one on red flags and serious pathology because uh, again we have people who do the spine of serious pathology and i'd love to have one on just generic rehab um just bread and butter boring stuff um which doesn't get talked about enough yeah uh, so i don't know let's do this in five or ten years and see if i'm on, on my way we'll see well yeah it's exciting i mean look you've got a whole range of of ideas and and i love those those topics because you know i think in some ways you know the physiotherapy profession you know so it's got so much to offer and and certain areas of kind of whizzed ahead in people you know injecting and using machines and all this kind of stuff and and great you know they're into that that's but but actually we've got some some nuts and bolts skills and knowledge that that can benefit so many people and it doesn't right require any tech you know i often say to people i work with all the stuff we'll talk about and that you can do practically no tech because you need Mm -hmm. to be able to do this wherever you are whatever you're doing so if you need a piece of equipment that's an immediate barrier Mm -hmm. um so it's really sort of scaling down so you know the basics of of rehab I, I don't know what happens at universities now. I mean, this is a long time ago. Um, I don't know what kind of training and education there is in, you know, basic exercise science, for example, how, how much depth that goes into and re- designing rehab programs and periodizing. So before I did physio, I did the sport rehab and sports science degree, which covered all of that over three years. So there's a lot of detail. And the lady who set that up, Angela Kumin, set it, she was a physio, was a physio, set it up exactly because that was not what was happening in the physio degrees but yet physios were then going out and then giving that information now some knew their stuff because they were already into it or did some extra learning but it wasn't kind of a main part of the the learning 
Yeah. Uh, and same with pain, you know, as we, as we know only too well, there's very, very yeah. little education on, on these massive areas where mm -hmm. physios are regularly and other professions are regularly advising on it, but without mm -hmm. any education, without or very minimal formal education. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think um, maybe, maybe, yeah, I think one of, one of the, the, the things that pe people always say to, to push back against that, what you're, what you're saying. Um, and also one of the, the kind of things that I had a lot of doubt in my mind as it was writing the book, which is, as probably most people listening know, it, it's a, about the basically pathomechanisms of sciatica, a reasonable amount of detail, is um, a lot of people say that all that kind of knowledge of, you know, pathological mechanisms, biological mechanisms, and that, that kind of nitty gritty sciencey stuff is not actually really a prerequisite. Um, and I think there's, a, there's a, actually a reasonably strong argument that it can be just too much of a distraction. You know, people don't actually need to know um, what happens if enough of a certain neurotransmitter gets across to a certain receptor. Um, I, I don't know, I, is, that's kind of something that there's a lot of pushback for that. And it's something I worried about the book as well is like, well, you know, who cares about all this nitty gritty detail? Because at the end of the day, we don't have any one treatment for sciatica in the same way that we have good treatments for some other medical conditions. Mm. Um, I don't know. Um, but then my, my, my thing that I always think is, well, if you have a, a pilot, you would kind of want them to know how a plane works, even if they're not actually fixing the plane, you know, in flight. You, you, there's, some, there's something about it where, or, you know, most, most um, people can bake a loaf of bread um, a pretty decent loaf of bread without knowing what happens with the gluten and the yeast and all that stuff. But past most um, expert bakers will learn that at some point. And they'll probably tell you that it improves their skill as a baker, even if they can't quite say how. Um, so I don't know, it's a bit of a tangent, but I don't know what you think about. Uh, do, you, do you kind of see what I'm trying to say about that? The common criticism, basically, that you don't need all this detail. You don't need all this scientific information um, in order to become a physio, um, which would render a lot of my book obsolete. But my sort of pushback against that is that you, you may not actually literally be telling it to the patient and it may not be changing your decision. But somehow there's some intangible thing where if you want to be an expert pilot, you need to know how a plane works, even if you're not fixing it, and actually screwing in the nuts and bolts yourself. I don't know what what, what do you think of what I'm what I'm trying to say. I think there's a lot in what you're saying. I think that I, I can sort of see both sides of the the argument, yeah. and and I think I've sat on on both at different times, um, and and usually end up coming down on the side of of knowing some science um in you know in detail um it it's it shows a level of understanding um but having said that you know you you could be fantastic at the neuroscience of of pain or sciatica but actually be very limited in your communication skills which means that when you're with a patient you you don't really know what to say or and and you know therefore it's it's a tricky encounter um, whereas, you know, you could have someone who's, who's not professionally trained uh, or, no, let me rephrase that, who, who's, 
you know, not necessarily a, a classic sort of healthcare professional, maybe, you know, a, a holistic therapist um, and will have success with people suffering all sorts of conditions, whether you're using Reiki or aromatherapy, mm-hmm. um, you know, any number of conditions there. And people, some people will get better that way. And these, and some people will have a good knowledge uh, and some people won't have such an in-depth knowledge. And maybe though those bakers are just people who are particularly interested. So they study mm. it further. Maybe the people that bought your book are, are just much more interested in that, in that depth and some, and some won't be so interested. So they'll either skim read it or they'll, they'll choose something else. Mm. So I suppose mm. you've chosen your target audience to be people who are interested in that depth of knowledge. You're not forcing people to buy it. You know, they're choosing <laughs> to buy it because they, because they're interested. You know, I would be interested. I haven't read your book. I'll admit that. Um, <laughs> but I'm, I'm interested. So I would, yeah. I would read your book because I like that depth because I'm a bit of a geek mm. and you would probably mm. read it as well. Mm. And, and would, but would you say, I know you haven't read it, so it's hypothetical, but would you say that um, that would improve your practice or would it, you said you'd read it because you were interested, which is a different thing to reading it because it would, it would make you a better clinician. Um, I guess that's the, that's the distinction and, yeah, because guess, people tell people tell me they, they they email me and say I liked your book it helped me to understand this that and the other and that's a lovely feeling like that's what I wanted to get people read it and they feel that kind of click oh that's why that is oh fantastic I'd never thought about it that's why that is but I I wonder yeah I wonder how much it translates into actual clinical decision making I'm not sure I think it it probably depends on on the person. To an extent, I mean, say, for example, you know, a clinician reads the book, they're interested, first of all, so they read the book. And, and I think in essence, you are reading it because you feel that that's somehow going to better you, Mm -hmm. whatever respect that is, maybe you just feel more confident. Because you know that you've got this knowledge, you're not imparting all of it, you're not going into massive detail with the patient, not in the same level but you're, you're just feeling confident in your explanation mm. to, to, give, to, give that, to give meaning and to create yeah. that confidence in that therapeutic relationship and then obviously give the space for things to happen. That's been my subjective experience too, is um, when I used to talk to patients about sciatica, um, it, even if the level of explanation was very basic, um, things just seem to go much better than if I was talking to them about stuff I didn't really understand, like, I don't know, an ACL tear or something. Yeah. Um, and so there's still some sort of intangible magic that sort of made me as confident as the Reiki master is in Reiki or something. And, and it just seemed to, everything seemed to go so much better. Um, maybe as well, because I was enjoying what I was talking about. Yeah, there's definitely something something there and and it, it all i think it all helps you build a, a model of the world as well um, which is kind of all anyone's trying to do when when, when we learn about stuff you, you know you ha- if you can make your model of what sciatica is better then yeah i guess it just helps you to 
you know, move through the world a little bit better, hopefully. So you, you feel that you're, you know, you're able to impart that information, you know, and of course you're doing it with your voice tone, with, with your posturing, mm-hmm. you know, really getting that soothing going through the way that you delivered by having that backing of knowledge. Yeah, I think, uh, and again, I, I don't know, I'm sure people have researched this extensively, like why it is, but I think people can sense when you're at the limits of your knowledge about something and people can probably sense when you know a lot more than you're telling them. Um, uh, so, you know, it's been, so yeah, it's just subjectively always seems to go much better when I talk about sciatica than when I talk about anything else. Um, and I think, I think that's why. Uh, yeah. Have, have you done any kind of, communication education yourself have you what have you looked at i haven't uh the only thing that i've really done is uh i interviewed john lorner and i obviously read his books before i interviewed him and that's probably as far down any communication path that i've gone um i what's about it was a good i spend a lot of time Sounds very pretentious. I spend a lot of time thinking about people and humans and how they work, um, which I think is almost the same thing. Um, and but I wouldn't say it's, I actually think about specific communication styles. It's probably more that I just picked up on certain important things along the way that basically everyone knows. Like you, um, you know you got to listen more than you speak, um, basic body language things. Um, but I mean, and I think John Lorna's stuff helped me a lot, which is, but also just brought more broadly in a, in a philosophical sense is a, a lot of clinicians make, um, say the right things about listening to patient stories and, um, about how there's always uncertainty in the world and we don't know everything, but you can see that they still have a very um, sort of black and white understanding of how the world works. So I'm getting a bit arrogant now, but you'll still see people saying, you know, this and that doesn't work or there's no evidence for this. And so so behind it, I think often people haven't actually made the philosophical shift and, and they think that when you listen to a patient's story, you're listening to how they're wrong and tolerating it <laughs> and, you know, and not, and being gentle about correcting them. Uh, but I think reading and talking to John, but also um, trying to understand um, scientific research a bit better actually, and, and listening to people who are smart about that stuff has helped me to tr- hopefully internalize a bit better that it, you know, without going too far into relativist sort of mush, it, it genuinely is true that we all have, we all see through a glass darkly um, and, and our maps of the world are all, you know, um, very partial in both senses of the word. Um, so I think, I think trying to understand that has hopefully made me a better communicator, but, you know, who knows? Everyone thinks they're a good communicator, don't they? Yeah, it's like we all think we're good looking. Yeah. Well, I know I'm good looking. <laughs> you are good looking. 
<laughs> but I mean, just going back to something you, you were saying there, um, which is something I think about quite a lot is, is this notion of, um, you know, fixing. So like there's the black and whiteness of, of it, right? There's the problem or you're the problem and I'm going to fix you. And, and that's, that was certainly the type of training I received. Mm. And your your shift in philosophy sounds like you've moved much more to um, perhaps a collaboration rather than sitting either side of the table and saying, right, I'm going to fix you. Yeah. I think, yeah. I, I think so. I think it's been quite a slow thing over time. I don't think there's any kind of one moment um, that, that that happened. And remember, I don't practice at the moment. Like, so uh, everything I'm saying is kind of purely theoretical. Uh, so like, this is what I would write in the second book. I'm desperately trying to write it while I can still remember what it was like to practice. And I think I'm going to have to make some like um, big adjustments in the style of it as well. Um, but that's, an, that's another topic. But um, yeah, I, th I think there's what is something you kind of read with. I, th I think I did a literature review recently and this thing kept popping up into my head where um, I think if when someone reads a study or performs a study um, that they, that tends to be um, and before they see can see the outcome they tend to be biased in one of two directions of what can happen. And some people believe that if you do something in the world, the world will change fairly predictably. And some people believe that if you do something in the world, there's no reason on earth in a, that anything would change, least of all how you want it to change. And I'm certainly, and certainly over time, probably constitutionally in the second camp, because if I self-reflect, I know that I can make huge efforts in my life to um, add weight to my deadlift or, you know, lose weight or write more, write better and bloody nothing happens. Like it's so hard to change anything about yourself. And it, it, it's just like, for me, I'm, al I'm always trying to gently to improve myself and nothing ever happens. Um, and so when, when I read a study and this kind of a null result and nothing happens, it doesn't surprise me that much. Whereas I think a, a lot of people still have a kind of quite mechan mechanical, like Rube Goldberg, Rube Goldberg, what's the machine sort of understanding of how the world works, which is if you press this lever, then a series of mechanisms will kind of kick into action and something will happen at the other side. Um, but that's not how I feel like the world is. And I think, so going back to your thing about collaboration, to me, it, it seems obvious that there's very little just ontologically that I could do personally to change that person's life course. Um, there's always these freak things where you say the right thing at the right moment and you know the clouds part and I can think of a few occasions that's happened almost by accident. Um, but I suppose the simple way of putting it is people say like you see them for half an hour every two weeks, what are they doing for the other I'm not good enough at maths to work it out a number of hours. Um, and then so the natural thing is that it has to be somewhat collaborative. Like there has to be, 
even collaboration is maybe putting too much onus on the practitioner. Like, um, so, um, yeah. So I think it just seemed that's a roundabout way of saying to me, it seems so natural and, and obvious that and not a particularly hard mental shift to make at all, that we should be collaborative. Um, but I know that a lot of people don't feel like the world works that way, and that's fine. It's probably an equally valid and probably quite useful way to see the world, that it is something that you can affect and change very easily. I just don't, it's not my, my sense of how things are. Does that make sense? Or? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I'm trying to follow. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm trying to sort of put that in the context of, of you know, your your book and, and other offerings and, and what you've done. So you feel that, that, you know, whatever you do doesn't really change the world much. Um, I, I, certainly by by myself. Yeah. I, I just I just feel like. Um, there's very few, you know, doing A leads to B things in life. And why should clinical practice be any different? You know, I can't think of the number of times I've started an exercise plan that I haven't stuck to and bloody nothing happened. Or, you know, I've decided that I'm going to do, change this thing about my work and make myself better in this particular way. And, and it doesn't really happen. Um, and so why, I don't know, I'm kind of trying to say a few things at once, I guess. Um, but I just think that the world is a really hard place to change. So it, it seems odd to me that as a clinician, you could, should expect to do that alone. You see what I mean? So collaboration has to, is a logical conclusion. So it's not so much that you don't think things can change. It's more that it, it needs to be, or it needs to involve more than one person based on your own experiences of trying to you know increase weight or do something in a particular way but my yeah. the question that comes sorry the question that comes up there very quickly is more around habit formation then as in do you do you find it challenging to create a new habit i think um as Certainly, yeah. Not, not, I wouldn't say more challenging than most people. I think most people struggle with that stuff, don't they? I, mean, I don't know if I'm correct in saying that. Um, but um, I, I, yeah, it's something I think about a lot, actually, especially now that I'm, I'm trying to work for myself and I'm trying to create my own structures um, because I don't have to be at my desk at a certain time. I have to make myself do that. Mm -hmm. So, um yeah, it is. It is. I'd, I would say it is hard, and everything's fallen apart after I finished my book because I, I treated myself to a week off, and of course now I can't get going again. Everything's gone. All the spinning plates have just fallen. Like I, it was going so well. Like I was at my desk at eight o'clock every morning. I'd do um, focus work for a certain amount of time, and then I'd switch to something else and answer my Twitter messages at a certain time, and it's all all gone now. So you, you created a a structure a daily structure that worked for you that delivered results yeah you've yeah. got a positive history yeah as a, that's um and again that, that's something that I'm, I'm probably like i bore my wife talking about this stuff now but if you go back to when, when i was saying as a 
like 10 years ago, I was not very self-reflective, quite feckless and quite aimless. And I think um, whether it's nature or nurture, some people are just not like that. Some people are naturally type A and stuff like that. And somewhere along the line, I forced myself to be a type A person, even though I'm not, or maybe I just grew up or something. But now I think a lot and listen to a lot of podcasts and stuff about productivity and habits and time management and all that stuff and and really try to um I think somewhere along the line I realized that um if I want you know I was doing myself an injustice by not um not thinking about that stuff even though I found it all kind of a bit cringeworthy and or you know all that I used to think it was all about Tim Ferriss for our life, you know, make your millions doing nothing type of thing. And I realized, you know what, well, you're not doing any better. You're <laughs> just drifting around. So you have to, uh, and so I did start to investigate sort of that space and now I'm really into it all. And it, it's certainly, it's been really good. It's been really good. So you're, so, you're um, full of, you're full of tips on how to manage and that, that ties back in with what you were saying before about, you know, uh, the dream of, of working with people and, and perhaps managing them to deliver mm. their, their messages. Mm. Yeah. And I think it's very, um, it's very personal, all that stuff. It, all, it always comes back to that, doesn't it? It's very personal. So the people that I've kind of, um, I listen to, uh, for example, Cal Newport, who you may have heard of and would be maybe the most famous example. I always listen to his podcast. I've read his stuff. But I think it's kind of just a, a very personal thing, whether you vibe with that particular productivity guru. Um, but, yeah, I think I probably have picked up. I think one of the key things was shifting my perspective on writing. Like the first stuff that I wrote, as I mentioned, was quite... Um, the kind of stereotypical image of the writer it was when I was kind of inspired and I wanted to do it and it just felt like it had to come out of me and you know um, but I've tried to shift my perspective to thinking of it more as manual labor now um, or more like you would think of manual labor you know I have to build a wall you know the first thing you can do is just start building and it's similar for writing um, which which is its own form of glamorizing writing uh, writers love to glamorize their craft and, and complain about how torturous it is. But that, that was a really important shift is like now, I, or what I was doing before everything fell apart, I would be at my desk at eight and I would just make sure I was writing until midday, um, which is easier said than done. Um, and whether it was crap or not, just make sure I was writing. So it was just getting into that, that routine, into that, well, you, you formed a habit. You know, yeah. you've yeah. done it before. And, and it's interesting because you said that, you know, you didn't believe that, that on your own you could, you could change anything. But there's an example of when you actually did. Yeah, um, yeah. But, I th and, and yeah, but many false starts as well, I think, for that. And one of the other things that help, helped is, so the newsletter, that was a very self-conscious a very conscious, de deliberate decision to publicly commit to something. Um, and uh, at one at one point, I was managing to get one out once a week, which is quite was harder than I thought it would be. Um, 
but that was that's another thing of, of you know the podcasts do it too so it's like you know, i know that if i have to talk to mark laslett in two weeks and i have to do my research because he'll let you know if you say something stupid <laughs> um so i think that's another thing as well is it to be honest i would say one of the biggest themes of managing to be reasonably productive on my own is trying to outsource my willpower at every possible opportunity because it's just not reliable. So another thing I did recently was um, started using something called Focusmate. Have you heard of Focusmate? No. I, I heard about this like a year ago and I didn't use it because it, like, it sounded like the most horrible thing, which is, um, I don't know what to liken it to, but basically you, you sign up and you say, I want to get to work at 8 a.m., and it, you tell the, the program you want to work at 8 a.m. and it matches you up with someone else in the world who wants to work at that particular time. Mm -hmm. So it might be someone in Chicago or Calcutta, or, you know. And so you have a one-minute conversation um, with them. You tell them what you want to do and they tell you they, what they want to do. So that's quite nice. It helps you to sort of focus right off the bat. Yeah. And then you literally sit in silence on a web, like on a, essentially a Zoom call and you work. So I'll write and often they'll be like coding or studying or writing. Um, and then at the end of 15 minutes, you check back in and you say how well it went and you never see that person again. Wow. And it took me so long to use it because it seemed like the most awful thing. And so it seemed like it would be so weird. But I realized that if I, I, I valued my work more than I valued the weirdness and the awkwardness of that social situation. Um, so I had to do it. And it, it was, it's actually probably one of the most, in, one of the most valuable bits of structure that I put into my work. Um, it's so effective for not, not allowing yourself to become distracted. So by, by moving out of your comfort zone and doing this thing, which felt really, do you say weird? Hmm. It actually focused you as it promised. Yeah, it's really, really effective. Yeah, um, and yeah, probably. Um, yeah, I, I would just. Uh, I don't know if anyone's uh, listening, still listening after listening to me ramble for this amount of time, I would recommend that next time you have to do anything that you have to focus on. Some some people just use it for household chores and stuff. Um, but once you get past that barrier, everyone's dead nice on there because everyone's everyone else is having the same trouble focusing on what they have to do. I would recommend trying that. Yeah. Focus seems to be, you know, one of the trickiest things, especially the, you know, there's so many distractions now. Um, how, how else do you try and improve your focus? Uh, I have a program called Freedom on my laptop, which um, Again, I'm, everything's fallen apart now, but in normal times, it would block almost all websites until midday and social media most of the week. So I'd have like just Friday or Saturday for social media. So I couldn't, literally couldn't go on Twitter. Um, like you can't even uninstall it if you really want to, you know. Yeah. Or you can set it so that you can't uninstall it and stuff like that. Um, and, and a lot of these things, um, they, they sound, they're almost a bit embarrassing to admit because it's like admitting that you, you can't uh, focus on anything. But I've, I've accepted long ago that 
um, maybe it's just me, but I don't think it is. Brains are not really designed to do to sit down and focus on anything for four hours. Like they're just not like good at doing it. And you you do have to just make not you can make yourself do it, but that only works for a short amount of time because you're either working on motivation or willpower, both of which are fickle. Uh, so the more things you can do to force yourself to do it, uh, like focus mate, like freedom, uh, what else? Uh, I had a bet with my friend Neil said if I didn't get my book out on time, I had to give him a thousand dollars or a thousand pounds. Just little stupid stuff like that that's a bit embarrassing to admit, as I say, but uh, it's I, I tried to build this like structure around myself to just make myself do stuff basically giving up any trust in myself that I'll work unless something makes me do it. But you found, you found ways that, that work for you. Everyone's got to find their, yeah. their way, their way of getting it, you know, getting it done. And mm. these were your, your ways and, and indeed you got it done. It sounds like you need to find some more ways now or repeat them. Yeah. Which is one of the other interesting things about any productivity hack is that it, degrades over time so you, you think everything thinks something's fantastic oh, i found the perfect app uh, for this and, and it but your brain will find ways around it mm. as you probably probably know like the, the monkey mind will find some way to distract itself even if you think you've got some watertight system so but i think that's another one of the things like as well as just accepting that you know it's not a it's not a personal failure if you're distracted or procrastinating it's just how people are also accepting that anything you do will only work for a certain amount of time. So I'm raving about Focusmate now, but I suspect that after a year, I'll find some way to get around it and procrastinate anyway. Yeah. And then I'll have to find something else to do. So it is like, it feels like um, one of those cartoons where like the road is running off the cliff and they have to put planks in front of themselves so they still have somewhere to run. Like it's just constantly trying to find ways to make yourself do stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting, but it's very, it gives you a good boost of self-efficacy when you can. So like all, all the things I'm hoping to do in the next few years, I don't think I could ever have imagined doing a year ago, never mind 10 years ago. Um, so it, it gives you, I feel like I, I can do stuff now on off my own back, which is quite a powerful feeling. So you've developed um, a healthy self-belief. Um, yeah, I think I know what I'm good at now, which is um, not, not something to be taken lightly. I think I've got like a sense of some things that I'm good at um, and a sense of some things which I'm bad at, which is obviously just as valuable. Um, so, and again, that, that I don't, I don't want to turn this into me giving advice, like I, I'm, uh, but I think a big part of that is it's just kind of sticking your neck out and doing stuff before you think you're ready to do it. Um, so like if it is just writing that blog post or starting that podcast, like if you wait till you're ready, you'll never get it done. But also it's to do with having, being part of a community that's receptive to that and receptive to people not being perfect. So that our circles, like I've, I've moaned a few times about various things, but incredibly supportive. Um, like if you, 
if you if you're like a, a physio and you're not sure of yourself and you put out a blog post or a youtube video you will get one or two bits of pushback on certain topics like you'll use the wrong word and someone will correct you or something but generally speaking people will be very supportive and no one's going to think less of you if you're wrong which is really crucial and for me like certain people like jack chu has been so important because like all along like he's been boosting me and retweeting me and um so i think it's also like i feel very grateful i was talking about choosing career paths before i feel very grateful that you know i've ended up in a community where um yeah where you can kind of do stuff and you'll get a pretty accurate feedback on whether it's good and be support and people will tell you that it's useful and, and keep you going so yeah I, I just love and this is going back to the idea of that I'd like my job to be helping people to do that basically so I was lucky that I could do that because I don't when I started I wasn't married I didn't have kids or many other responsibilities but some people do and they don't have spare time so it would be it would be great to be able to sort of help more people to I don't know, do that stuff. So you've really valued that that support from the community. And mm. now in your sense, you know, you can sort of give back in a way or give to those who would find it more challenging. Yeah, absolutely. Because I I'm it's an and again, it's it's not a totally selfless thing. I just know that it feels great to um create stuff. It feels great, it's a nice feeling and it would probably be a nice feeling to help other people do that. So, you know, I want that feeling. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's, it's not like a Mother Teresa or anything, but it goes back to aligning things that you want to do with things that make money. So, and hopefully I can do that. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's fantastic, Tom. Really excited. I'm very excited for you. Yeah, me too. Like the time's ahead. I've got to write the second book first, though, <laughs> before I get ahead of myself too much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well you know you're you're on the case and you're you're thinking about mm. how you're going to do it so where where can people find you uh at thomas underscore jesson on twitter uh and if you go to my website tomjesson.com um you can find links to some of the the newsletter and some of the stuff that i've written in the past have a look at that um yeah and there's a contact form on there as well, which uh, if anyone wants to contact me. How, what, I'm going to use a John Lorna trick, Richmond. How do you feel like this conversation has, has gone? I, I've enjoyed it because um, we, we've not spoken before. Yeah. Um, and um, I, I like to get to know the person. And I just feel that we're just having a bit of a chat like no one else is around. But if people mm. are eavesdropping via the podcast, then that's great for them yeah. too. Uh, I think it's been, I think you've been open and honest and frank and that's fantastic. <laughs> well, I hope it was, uh, I'm glad it was useful for you. I hope it was interesting for people listening, who knows. Um, but I, I love, we talked about this off air just before we came out. I love podcasts for this reason, which is, I think it's so great to listen to people talk candidly. Um and sometimes they're really bloody boring and sometimes they're interesting and hopefully I've been interesting. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, yeah, it's been, it's been fascinating. You so say the, you know, it's, it's easy to talk about, you know, the, 
or go into detail around the peak achievements, or I could say to you, give me your view on piriformis syndrome or, <laughs> or something like that. Um, but, but, you know, you've written about that and people can read that. But, but actually, I always think, you know, knowing, knowing the person, you know, their background, what they're into, you know, and you've been happy to share your vulnerabilities as and actually all, all the guests I've spoken to have, have done that in their own way. And, and that's really, you know, valuable because we're, mm -hmm. we're all human beings just doing, doing the best that we can um with with what we've got and and by coming together in this way um it's it just shares that really so it's so thank you my pleasure i'll and have to so, start a more sorry go on i was gonna say so we'll, we'll have to catch up again um yeah. down the line i was gonna say i'll have to start a, a conversational podcast as an excuse yeah <laughs> well you just just do it really um, yeah. most people are up for a chat and yeah um, yeah press press record and off you go that's all i do yeah yeah i think i, I think i probably will because i enjoyed this uh and uh i think it's a good format i've enjoyed the other ones too so yeah thanks richmond that was a that was a real pleasure good stuff me too so let's keep in touch yeah take care cheers tom bye, -bye.